We live in a community in a world that the scriptures describe as a harvest field for us. And there are times when you listen to some and they see the world and the community that they're part of as being the enemy. And there is a certain biblical truth that you can apply that when people oppose God's word and oppose God's work, they're being enemies of the gospel. But because they're enemies of the gospel, it doesn't mean that we treat them like enemies. Because it's while we were still enemies of God that Christ died for us. We take our, our model and we take our role from Jesus and not from religious zealots. Religious zealots get on planes and blow them up in the name of religion. Religious zealots go in and blow up a community or blow up a home. But people of Christ are people who have entered into this transcendent, transcendent meaning beyond this world. People who are in Christ have entered into this transcendent relationship with the ultimate transcendence, which is God, that no one can fully understand and can fully comprehend, but he's revealed himself to us. And in revealing himself to us through Christ and through his word, he shows us what his plans are. We live in a world that our children are being taught to look down to understand rather than to look up to understand. Animals live by instinct. Wolves battle over who's going to be the alpha male, but they never battle over the fact that there's going to be an alpha male. They have been battling from time immemorial about who's going to be the alpha male. Lions and bears, they're territorial. They claim a territory, they mark a territory, they hunt that territory. But you'll never find a lion trying to act like a wildebeest. And you'll never find a bear trying to act like a lamb. They're doing what they do by instinct. And there's not a one of us that haven't been fascinated by watching ants build ant farms. I've sat mesmerized watching them work back and forth, moving, tunneling. But ants have been doing that since time immemorial. I mean, we're fascinated by what they do by instinct, but that's what ants do because God created them. One time, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he says, go and consider the ants, how they gather and harvest. But an ant has never built anything that's made an architectural magazine just stand back and wonder the way they did over a Frank Lloyd Wright home. Because human beings have this innate ability because they're created in the image of God to reason and to think and to imagine and to conceptualize and to build and to create things and communities and to take, as we looked at last week in the scripture, to take a dream, to take a seed and make something blossom out of that seed. It all began with a dream or a thought. And that's the reason 
that I find evolution to be such a destructive, difficult, and hard thing when people imbibe that and say, this is where we came from. You're missing the whole miracle of your creation that you were created in the image of God and that you were created not to live by instinct, but you were created to live by the life that Christ gave you, putting his spirit within you and then being able to have your thinking, as Romans chapter 12 says, completely transformed so that you could prove what is the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God. God's will is those three things. It's good and it's perfect and it's pleasing. Now, we make a mistake as human beings sometimes. We make a mistake in thinking that there's this fixed order that we can't alter. No, we live in a world that has fallen and God has told us to go in the power of Jesus' name through the teaching and the preaching of his word and we could come up against that order, quote, that is fixed and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And entire civilizations have been saved because somebody said, no, this is not the way it should be. This is what God's word says it ought to be. And God does a miracle. But then we make a mistake if we go the other way and we think, well, there is no limits. We can change anything we want to change. And there are limits that God puts. One of those limits is marriage. This is not in your outline. But this morning as I was praying and I was thinking, a passage of Scripture came to me and I just took it and made it my prayer from Proverbs chapter 5. It just simply says, and you don't have to turn there. You can turn later, 5, 18, and 19. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you, and may you always be captivated by her love. So I just changed the words to read like this. Father, may Becky always be a fountain of blessing for me, and may I always be captivated by her love. And as I prayed that and lifted my hands and worshiped, I thank God for something he gave to us called marriage, for something God thought up, for something God created, for something God invented, for something that God gave us, not human beings created, but that God gave us, and it was called marriage. And because of that, I can live a lifetime with my wife being captivated by her love. You can live a lifetime with your wife or your husband being captivated by their love. And marriage can be a fountain of blessing. Isn't that wonderful? Marriage can be this fountain overflowing with blessing. I heard someone this week describing a home to me and they says it even has a fountain outside. And I thought to myself, what is it that we always get mesmerized by fountains? Disney World, they build fountains because fountains help keep you cool in Disney World. There's so much concrete and there's so much asphalt that one of the reasons they have so many water treatments there is it's their way of bringing air conditioning in and it keeps you cool. It refreshes you so you're not overwhelmed with Central Florida's heat in the summertime. And people are magnetically drawn to those fountains. And my prayer is that people are going to be magnetically drawn to our marriages and to our homes and want to know why our marriages are so full of joy. Isn't that your prayer this morning? That God would let us be captivated. 
I'll be doing a message in this series on sex and I want all of our students to hear this message. I want all of their students to come. It's PG, so that means I need parents with the students when I preach on this message. But sex is so much more than what you're taught evolutionary. Sex is so much more than what people want to tell you that sex is. If we are in this transcendent relationship with God when we were born again, you must understand this about sex and marriage. It's this metaphysical union. It's, it's why that the Bible says that sex is more than skin on skin, and that's what the world tries to tell us today, that it's just a need like hunger. Every once in a while, I'll have a young person say to me, sometimes it's a young man, sometimes it's a young woman, they'll say, but why do you Christians want to inhibit sex? It's, it's just another need like hunger. And I let them talk to me and I'll say, listen, that young man or that woman, young woman, is not a quarter pounder from McDonald's that you can consume and be done with. They're not a double cheese burger that, you know, when you're done, you go, that was so good. I can't wait to get another. Sex, and then I begin to tell them, it's this metaphysical thing. God says, and that's a whole new concept to some of these young adults I talk to sometimes. God says that sex is this metaphysical union, meta being beyond physical. It's this beyond physical when a husband and a wife come together as husband and wife and God joins them. It's why we do marriage. Then God is a part of that relationship. That passage I quoted to you from 1 Corinthians 6 this morning is a part of our communion meditation. Boy, Paul goes in so deep with this for Christians. And so as we go through this series, I want you to know that you live in a world that's no surprise to you, but you live in a world where marriage is being devalued. You live in a world where marriage is being cheapened. And you live in a world where there is a strong, aggressive attempt by political parties to gain political favor with constituencies, by Congress, by the Supreme Court, by Hollywood who stands to make billions of dollars this same crowd that now stands up and cries out about how badly women who've been treated after they have made billions of dollars objectifying women, showing women being abused and raped and used, music moguls that are suddenly all about women's rights after they've made billions of dollars of some of the harshest, cruelest words, now see more billions of dollars to be made in redefining marriage. See, Pastor, does that make you angry? You have no idea. But it doesn't make me hate people. And you see, that's the difference. It makes me angry, but it doesn't make me hate people. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. And my prayer for this series is that we will so honor marriage in our church, and in our community, 
that our marriages themselves and our families will become so evangelistic. Evangel meaning good news. There will be such good news about our families and our homes that is. Peterson translates Romans chapter 12, that in our everyday living, our sleeping, eating, drinking, going to work lives, that somehow or another, our marriages and our families will be such a blessing to our neighbors and to our community and the places of employment and where our children go to school, that people will want what we have in Jesus' name. And they'll never settle for some cheapened substitute. And they'll understand We don't live by instinct. We live by the grace and the power of Jesus Christ who helps us not only to imagine but to create a better world in Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? Well, give him a hand of praise if you would this morning. Stand with me and here's my prayer. And here's where I want to anchor the message this morning. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Read that with me. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And that's my prayer for all of us, is that you're going to honor marriage. And the way you are married is going to make other people honor your marriage. Now, Paul goes on and he talks about there are some people that God calls them to singleness. And every once in a while, somebody will ask me, say, and I just had this question asked of me recently. He says, do you think God has called me to singleness? Do you think that I'm supposed to live celibately? And I asked them, I says, do you want to be married? They go, yes. I go, then God hasn't called you to singleness. Because if God calls you to singleness, you don't want to be married. They went, Whew, that's good news. You see, you'll know if you're called to singleness. I have good friends that are called to singleness. There's nothing wrong with being single, and God forbid that we would ever dishonor that. But if you're called to singleness, you'll know it. That's what you'll want. You'll want to give your whole life just to serving God, and you'll see singleness as a way of your fulfilling what God has called you to do. And you won't live a frustrated, sexually frustrated, or relationally frustrated life. You'll know that's what God has called you to do. But you can benefit from this message as well as anybody else can this morning. Because we want marriage to be held in honor by all. Amen? Well, Father, this morning we start off in an area that, Lord, over time I have found out that so many people think they know so much about. God, when actual reality they have an opinion about. God, sometimes your people are put in a position where they're asked difficult questions. And Lord, they really want to be able to go more than just the Bible says so. They want to be able to present why you've said this and what your word says. And then for every one of us, Lord, we want marriages that are fountains of blessing, captivated by the love of our spouse, and Lord, our children growing up and saying one day, I am so thankful that God, you put me in the home you did, that I grew up in a godly home where my mom and dad loved each other. So now, Father, I ask for a special measure of grace like never before, to preach and to teach upon this subject. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. 
And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And I'll give you a minute to grab your notes and to follow along with me. Let me say it again. We're not just saying it, but boy, anytime we have a snowstorm like this, we pastors show up and go, okay, who are going to be among the saints this morning? And we're so glad to see you and that you got out. And uh, I walked out into my backyard just so I'd know how to pray for everybody last night. And um, I found a place that was just level ground and there was no drift. And I had on thick bottom shoes and the snow came up to here. And I looked up into a cloudy sky and I says, Lord, whoever comes to church tomorrow is coming because they love you. So God bless you and I'm glad you're here today. And I hope you'll pass this message along. I won't be repeating this message, so it's going to be important that uh, you help me get the word out about this message being online. Well, let's look at the meaning of marriage. Number one, God created marriage. It's the most important part of this point. God created marriage, but he created marriage to join a man and a woman for life. We have a congregation in our community that is under attack right now by those who disagree with this statement and have protested, and I understand their pastor at Metro City Church has even received death threats. And this shouldn't surprise any of us when hell begins to have its way in a community and people begin to buy into a lie, then they want to silence anybody that disagrees with them. As I sat with another pastor this week who was scared about these things, and I talked with him, and he says, well, do you think we're about to see violence? And he says, I'm really frightened by this. I said, you know, the Bible tells us that in the last days that times will become more and more violent, but the only way violence will prevail is if people of God give upon their faith and allow violence to prevail. And so, no, I'm not worried about violence prevailing. I'm worried about people of God losing the reason for why we believe what we believe. And if we know why we believe what we believe, it's like keeping a goal. It's like keeping any commitment you make. If you can always go back to the why you made that commitment, you will find the motivation and the drive to fulfill that commitment. But if you have no why behind that commitment, then why do you keep that commitment? If you have no why behind your desire to exercise, if you have no why behind your desire to be married, then you have no reason to fulfill it. And so one of the things that we try to do in premarital counseling in the 12 weeks of premarital counseling that we give for free at Woodland is not only to help people discover their whys, but give them the tools with which to, be, to believe and to build a healthy marriage with. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 11 that as far as the Lord is concerned, men and women need each other. Underline that in your outline this morning. Men and women need each other. As far as the Lord is concerned, I need Becky and Becky needs me. As far as the church is concerned, men and women need one another in church. As far as politics is concerned or education or art, men and women need each other. But in marriage in particular, there was a divine reason that God had for creating Adam first. Is Adam called, as the animals came to Adam and Adam named them in the creation story, in the creation account, he noticed that there was a difference because God had created the animals male and female. God had created them, and as he began to see this, he began to experience something that God said was not good, but I think in the providential care of God for men especially to understand, 
Adam began to experience loneliness. And when he experienced loneliness, God said this was not good. And then he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he took a part of Adam's body and he created a woman using that as the seed in the beginning of creating a woman. And that's the reason that that verse of Scripture of God taking a rib from Adam and creating a woman is so powerful and poetic. I believe it's literally true, but it's so powerful and poetic of how God created us. He created men marriage. He created men and women. So one of the things that I take from this is that marriage, sex, and gender, they're all God's idea. The differences are delightful. The differences are distinctive, and the differences are good because God created them that way. And when God created woman, he brought to Eve this woman, and he looked at her. He goes, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the only thing he knows to do is go, Whoa, man. And that's how woman got her name was woman. As he looked at her and he saw, there are these differences. It's important that you understand that in the creation account that God didn't create a best buddy for Adam. He didn't bring Adam, Adam number two, to be his best friend. He didn't bring to him another man. He brought to him a woman. And so it's vital to our understanding. It's good for us. I have good friends. I have people I love to hang out with. I have buddies. I have prayer partners, people in my life that I include, but there is no rival in my heart when it comes to Becky among men or women. There is no rival in my heart among people when it comes to the body of Christ and to the church. And there is no rival in my heart when it comes to Becky or the church when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is number one, and if Jesus is Lord of your marriage, if Jesus is Lord of your church, if Jesus is Lord of your family, if Jesus is Lord of a community, the gates of hell shall not prevail against that. Hallelujah. Well, give him a hand of praise this morning. So marriage is the only true antidote, the only true cure, the only true solution to the problem of loneliness among human beings. The Bible says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 6, but in the beginning, God made a man and a woman. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and gets married. And he becomes like one person with his wife. Then they are no longer two people, but one. Read this last sentence with me. And no one should separate a couple that God has joined together. There's three things you see there. Marriage with God's plan, marriage is permanent, and marriage is between a man and a woman. The second thing about marriage, if you want to understand the meaning of marriage, is God created marriage to bring forth godly children. God created marriage to bring forth godly children. It was the first command he gave to Adam and Eve, that they were to multiply, they were to replenish. In other words, they were to have sex, they were to have children together, they were to bring them here. Every one of us, of our, every one of us that are here today, we're here because somebody got together and we were the result of their getting together. That's how we all got here. But God's desire was not just that people just flippantly take this to matter, but he would, they would say to themselves, we're going to commit it to each other in a loving and a godly way, and we're going to raise godly children. Look at Malachi chapter 2 in verse 15. God, not you. Say that with me. God, not you. Say it again. God, not you. Not the Supreme Court, not Hollywood, not Congress, not a 
college, not a university professor, not a group of scientists together. God, not you, made marriage. And his spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God, that's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you and don't treat your, cheat upon your spouse. God's first command was not only that we get married and not only that we have children, but that we honor this marriage commitment. Now, this is huge to understand, so I want you to track with me because it's real easy for us to think, well, we've done that really well. We've had children. But the point to understand is you wouldn't love if God wasn't a loving God. You wouldn't crave love if God wasn't a loving God, and you wouldn't have a loving marriage if God wasn't a loving God. Remember, the animals do what they do by instinct. You and I are made in the image of God, and we are able to choose to commit and to love. You desire to be loved because you're created in the image of God, and the Bible says when it wants to just give us a succinct statement of who God is or what God is, the apostle John he writes in the book of 1 John that God is love. And the very reason that you want to be loved, the very reason that you desire to be loved, the very reason that you desire to give yourself in a loving marriage is because you were created in the image of God and the very reason that you were saved is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Think of one good thing that the devil has done for you. Think of one good thing that a fallen sinful world has done for you and you're gonna come up with a hen egg. But when you think about the goodness of God, you can sum it all up in this. God loves us. We desire to love and to be loved because we're created in the image of God. And you cannot feign that. You may write poetic songs about it. You may make poetic movies about it. But I want to tell you something. It seems that celebrities spend more time and more money preparing to get married than they do staying married. Now think about that. And we take all of our advice and we take our counsel from these so-called enlightened people who are more miserable than the average person on the street. The only reason that you and I love is because God created us. I watched the squirrels sometime in the summertime in my backyard. Squirrels mate, but they don't love. You know, if you've ever had a female dog, you know what it means when she comes into season, you gotta hide her because every single dog in town comes around. They don't love. And you've got to understand how important this concept of love is. There is no love like God's love outside of the body of Christ. And when you try to feign that love, or you try to create that love, I'm not saying that people can't make commitments that are not Christians. I'm not saying that people can't even love that are not Christians. But there is a kind of love called agape love. It is a God-given love. It is a love described in 1 Corinthians 13. It is the chapter of the Bible that is most requested in every wedding ceremony, and I have done over a thousand weddings. It is the one that has been most requested for every single wedding ceremony I've ever done. And one of the things that I tell the couple you cannot hope to live this kind of love unless Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Because that love doesn't exist in you until you've been born again. If God didn't want to love you and love me, we would not even exist.
And that's one of the marvelous things about studying theology is when you study who God is and what the Bible says about God, what the Bible teaches about God, what the natural order teaches us about God, you look at God and you go, now I get it why you created us because John summed it up so well. God who is omnipotence, God who is all power, God who is all knowing, God who is all present, God who is the self-existent, eternal I am, God who is the ultimate transcendent, God who is everything, God is love, and love desires to create and to nurture and to care for. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? And that's why godly people want to have godly children. And godly marriages then make a safe home and build a safe family for children. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 and verse 26, the fear of God builds up confidence and makes a world safe for your children. Underline or circle that phrase, safe for your children. You and I were born totally and completely helpless, dependent upon somebody to feed us, to change us, to, to roll us over, to pat our back so that we could burp. I mean, just think about it. There's nothing that we could do for ourselves when we were born. I was always amazed. I can remember asking my dad. I can remember asking my grandfather and my uncles, and they would all say, Denny, we've explained this to you before, why it was that a calf could be born and then get up on its little wobbly legs and begin to walk around and seek its mother out for nourishment. Why it was a colt could get up on its little wobbly legs and walk around and seek its mother out for nourishment. I was always mesmerized by the fact that right after a an animal was born on the farm. It wasn't long before they were walking around and frolicking and playing. But babies and human beings are completely different. That helplessness tells us something about ourselves. You are helpless until you have been born again. You don't know life. You don't know love until you've been born again. And God calls us in to take care of and to protect and to love the children that he's given to us. A study was done upon children of over 150 children. Listen to this. And they found out of these 150 children that the kids with two parents were more likely to graduate from college. Kids with two parents were more likely to say no to alcohol and drug abuse. The kids with two parents were more likely not to experience depression or distress or suicide. They found out that kids who lived with two loving parents were more likely to go on and to marry somebody else and to build a godly and a successful home. You are doing something when you are raising your children in church and you're having devotions with your children. When you are raising your children to to love God and you love each other, you're building a healthy and a safe world. Now, when I counsel with couples and when Rick counsels with couples, one of the things we always tell them, and if I ever do your wedding, if you're a young person in our church and I do yours, I'm going to tell you the same thing I tell every young couple. Your brain, I will draw it out for you. Some of you that I've done your wedding, you know what I'm talking about. I'll draw your brain out for you. Because you see, 85% of everything you know about marriage, you learned it from your mom and daddy. And everything that I try to tell you, every chapter and every verse of scripture I try to show you from the Bible, 
I have got to come at that knowing that 85% of what you deeply believe about marriage, you've learned it from your mom and dad. You may be saying to yourself, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that my mom and dad made, but in times of stress, there's going to be something that rises up inside of you that wants to react the way your mother and dad reacted. And I'm trying to give you tools to help you overcome those negative things so that you can build a positive and a godly marriage. And I've told you that one of the things that you have to do with those tools is you have to practice. You have to use those tools. You can't just take them here in a counseling session and think, oh, I've got the answer and it's going to work. It's like golf or ping pong or driving or anything else. You've got to work those tools and practice those tools until they become like second nature to you. Because if your dad was an oppressive, domineering man and if your mother ever voiced her own opinion and your dad shut that down, especially if you're a man, when your wife does disagrees with you, you're going to want to shut your wife down because something in you, you were raised that way, you don't want anybody disagreeing with you. And you may think mentally, I shouldn't do that. And if you've got the right tools, you'll feel good for doing that. But if you don't have the right tools, you'll feel less than masculine for doing that. And if you grew up in a home where your mother was the domineering one and your dad just didn't like conflict and so he always backed down when your mother disagreed or something, there's something in you that when your wife disagrees, and she really wants you to be a stand-up kind of guy. She really wants you to lead. She really wants to hear your opinion. But something in you, even though it knows it's right, you don't want the conflict, so you back down. And the purpose of the marriage counseling is so we can give you tools because there's no perfect mom and dad. There is no perfect marriage. But if husbands and wives will take the meaning of marriage and the biblical principles that we give them, we will raise up a generation of children. They will be the the vanguard that will pierce the darkness of a world that is demeaning, that is trying to redefine, that is criticizing, that is saying marriage is not important anymore, and we can penetrate the darkness of this world with a godly generation of children, that they will know the Lord, and they will do great and mighty exploits, because we will be building healthy minds, spirit-filled minds inside of them, feeding them upon the word of the Lord. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? <laughs> Parenting is hard work. Marriage is hard work. Let me also share this with you. Women who marry and stay married have lower rates of depression than single women or women who cohabitate with another man. Women who marry and stay married have a lower risk of being a victim of crime. Women who marry and stay married, they have a higher net worth than women who live with a man they're not married to. Recently, I counseled with a woman who came to see me, doesn't go to our church, but she was in a, an abusive boyfriend relationship. And I asked her, I says, what does your boyfriend bring into this relationship? She says, well, he loves me. I says, is that why you've got the bruise on your face? And she goes, well, he didn't mean to. Has he done this before? Yes. I said that he meant to. I said, how much money does your boyfriend bring in this? She says, well, he doesn't have a job right now. I'm paying for everything. And as I listened to this girl, I finally just looked at her and I says, honey, you need to know what the Bible says about you. You were created in the image of God. You were a child of God. God died to save your sins. And you were so desperate for love, you were turning to an abusive, lacy bum. That's when I cuss, okay? That's about the amount of my cussing. I just said, he is a bum. He is not treating you. He's acting like the devil. You need to get out of this relationship. But she goes, I love him. I said, sweetheart, you don't love him. What you have become is codependent upon him. God has a better plan for your life. 
Listen to me. Women who get into these kinds of relationships, you are asking for trouble. You are not a quarter pounder to be devoured. Somebody give God a hand of praise this morning. And every quarter pounder I've ever had, I've had to pay for. And here she is paying to have this bum live with her. Men who marry and stay married, they live longer than single men. Men who marry and stay married amass more net worth than men who live with a woman they're not married to. And get this, men who marry and stay married not only have fewer injuries and fewer diseases, but also fewer life-threatening diseases like cancer and heart disease and diabetes. You see, there is a direct relationship to honoring God's word and God's principles and your health and your security and your children. The third thing that God created marriage for is God created marriage to be fun, loving, life-giving, and holy. God created marriage to be fun, loving, life-giving, and holy. You see, you will never understand fun and you will never understand love, and you will never understand what it gives, means to have life until, first of all, you understand holiness. And that is a concept that is so foreign to our world today because nothing is holy, nothing is sacred anymore. These people who've come viciously to attack and to protest at a church, I was asked this week what I thought about. I said, treat them with respect, treat them with love, treat them with kindness. Don't react to them the way that you are, but understand something. You are the body of Christ. You are the church. Respond to react as Christians should. Do not respond with hatefulness, but understand when a world gets to such a place of decay, nothing is sacred, nothing is holy anymore, and as one of our presidential candidates said, evangelicals must be forced to to change their opinions on marriage and to accept gay marriage as being sacred. Friends, I don't care how much Mrs. Clinton may have accomplished good, but on that point, she is simply wrong. Nobody needs to be forced to change their mind, whether they agree with what I'm saying or disagree. You can disagree with what I'm saying, and I will respect your right to disagree with it. I will not profane your right to have your own thoughts and your own ideas, but don't try to corrupt the Word of God by saying, we're going to change it all. Understand something. You will never understand fun, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. You will never understand love whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. You will never understand what true life-giving is whether you're a Christian or not a Christian until you understand the holiness of God. It is the Holy Spirit. Say that with me. Holy Spirit. Say it again. Holy Spirit. The holiness of God that gives us love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and self-control. It's those things that we want in life that only comes from a holy God. You will You'll never get that from Satan. You will never get that from hell. You will never get that from the world. You will only get that in Jesus Christ. <laughs> only get that in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 18 and verse 1 says, It is selfish and stupid to think only of yourself and to sneer at people who have sense. You see, marriage to be fun and loving and life giving, you've got to respect one another. Becky and I certainly don't look at things the same way. 
There were things when Becky and I got married that I did with her because I had such intense feelings of love for her. After we got married, I didn't think I had to do those things anymore. <laughs> I got the girl. I mean, who in his right mind goes to the opera? Who in his right mind goes to an art museum if he's a man? I'd much rather watch football. I'd much rather do something else, but after I married Becky, she says, you don't do some of these things. Well, we're married now. You know, see, when you get married, you're one of the things that you find out is that your spouse, your husband, your wife, some of the things that they enjoy doing, it expresses the image of God in them, and you need that expression. You don't want to snuff it out. My mind changed on a lot of things as Becky talked with me. And I, when I say talk, she never nagged, but we had long conversations, a long talk. And one night I was reading Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 9. Listen to this. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You held it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Becky had captured my heart, and I realized I found myself now not doing it to win her like I did when she married me August 13th, 1976. But now I was doing it because I truly loved her. And so I'd say something to all of you dating couples out there. Listen to me. Some of the things that you do for each other, you're doing now because you've got such intense feelings of love. You love each other. You just love, love, love each other. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because everybody comes to me when I ask them, what's the number one reason you want to get married? We love each other. <laughs> you have no idea what love is yet. <laughs> After you get married, you're going to know what love is. <laughs> right now, you just love each other. So if he wants to go to the races, you go sit out there in Michigan 500 and you watch cars go round and round in circles. And then after you get married, you don't want to do that anymore. Or right now, you go with her and you look at pictures hanging on a wall painted by some dead man years and years and years ago. And you can do that good with a paintbrush slinging paint in your basements. Jackson Pollock. My wife likes it. You see, you do things after you get married because you really love each other. You see, marriage is a lifelong course on how not to be selfish. Marriage is a lifelong course on how to grow up. You may be 75, and you're still growing up because you're still finding out things in marriage that your wife wants to do. I mean, do you always have to go to the same place at the same time on vacation? Or could we do something a little different this year? But we've always done it this way, honey. Well, this year I would like to do something different. And then you find yourself, this is not what I want to do, but you have captured my heart. You have held me hostage. And whatever you want to do, I'll do. I've recommended this book at least 100 times to you. The smart get it and read it. It's called The Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I'll say it again. The smart get it and read it. 
Mr. Chapman says there's five love languages, and if you'll put those up on the screen, there's first of all words of affirmation. You see, in a marriage, there's some of us, we just love to be affirmed. You'd, you know, if you've cut the grass, what means more to you than anything else is for your wife or your husband, or if you have a child that cuts the grass, your son just got, maybe your son has words, and you just say, boy, what a great job. You weeded it, everything, the grasses, thank you so much. And you don't know what you've, you've just filled up their love tank. For some people, it's acts of service. I mean, there's some things if I know that if I want Becky to feel loved, I've just got to do because, you know, as much as I may dislike doing them, that by doing that, if, if she never says this way, but basically she say, if you loved me, you'd vacuum the carpet. I vacuum the carpet because I know that acts of service mean something to her. Some, it's receiving gifts, you know, and it doesn't have to be a big diamond. It's just that you remember to bring a flower or you remember to, to bring him something home because you loved him. It's just the receiving of gifts. For other people, it's quality time. It's just that time to be able to look in each other's eyes, and all of us should have that time. Mine, when I read Mr. Chapman's book, I was like, Doggone, I know right where I'm at. Mine is physical touch. There's something about Becky's touching me. I want to be close to her. You know, if she lays down in the middle of the bed at night, slides over the other side, I'm going to be on the other side next to her, you know. It's just because I want to touch her. I want to be close to her. I want to feel her hand on my arm. When she comes by and touches the back of my neck and my shoulder, I don't always get chill bumps. Sometimes I do, and I go, come on, victory. <laughs> but it's just that sense of touch, and some people just need to be touched. Now, it's great if you understand that love language, but if you don't understand that love language, then you are not taking the time to really understand your spouse where you can build a fond and a loving and a life-giving and a holy marriage. You say, well, why should I? That's what they ought to do. They, you know, he ought to take the trash out on Thursday nights. He ought to put the trash, he ought to, why should I say thank you? Because you love him. And because if you're a holy person, you're not thinking about yourself. It's just natural that God's loving you. Why should I bring a gift? She's got more than she... Because you love her. And the whole, each day, God is bestowing gifts upon you. And so we attempt in our own small ways to bestow a gift upon. I would submit to you that the smart get Mr. Chapman's book and they read it and that you sit down together and you discuss what each other's love language is so that you understand how to have a fun, a loving, and a life-giving, and a holy marriage. And the smart said, Amen. see, there's no dummies in here this morning. This is the smartest place in town to be. And then, number four, God created marriage. God created marriage to build strong communities. To build, you can study history of any civilization and in any civilization where marriage is not honored. In any civilization where marriage is not honored, that civilization is on its way to ruin. And it doesn't take an Einstein to figure out where America and Europe and Canada are headed right now. There are many countries that I visit in South America that are not as politically as strong and they're not as economically as strong. Asian cultures that are not as politically as strong and as economically strong. But those third world nations are rising because of two reasons today. South America and Asia are having a tremendous revival 
God is moving and people are being saved. People are being healed. People are being filled with the Holy Spirit. God is doing incredible things on these two continents and these third worlds that we look down our noses upon. And the second thing is they have a very, very strong family unit. And any nation that begins to dishonor this, that nation is on the road to decline. Look at Proverbs 14 and verse 34, and I'd like you to read this out loud with me. Godliness makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, friends, when you have psychiatrists, psychiatrists writing books like Whatever Happened to Sin, we've got to stop and ask ourselves, what has happened in America that we no longer say there's a right or a wrong? What has happened in America when all of a sudden children are disposable and not an asset? Children have become a liability, they're not an asset. What has happened in America when we want to redefine marriage? What has happened in America when all of a sudden our schools are no longer as much about education as they are about somehow or another we're going to do this great experiment with our children and change how our children perceive things? And when you have meetings like happened in our own community two years ago where the school did not want the parents to be a part of the meeting. When I called the school and they said, parents are not welcome, I said, those are our children. And there was an activist community that went to work right here in our community, and things were changed, and the meeting was opened up, but some things that have been proposed to discuss were not discussed simply because there are people who want to take your children and mold them in the way they think they should be treated. You can be angry at sin, you can be angry at the way the culture is going, but you cannot react hostily to people. You've got to be strong and you've got to be bold in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen. And there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And sin is a disgrace to a nation. It's the reason I put this verse, next verse in there, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, but hold tightly to what is good. Can, will you please get that right? Just look at that carefully. He's saying, love people. Don't just pretend, love people. Hate what's wrong. Hold tightly to what is good, but love people. Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. Some of you in this room, perhaps you were very hostile towards God at one time. Some of you in this room, perhaps you mocked God at one time. Some of you, as one of our members recently told me, says, Pastor, I used to smoke marijuana and blow it at a crucifix of Jesus and say, there, God, what are you going to do about that? And I would mock God and blaspheme his name. And somehow or another, I just felt so powerful by being able to profane everything that's holy. But God has changed your life. God has saved them and changed their whole concept. But but what one time did God ever hate that person? And as they shed their tears telling me about it, I says, Pastor, do you think God could ever forgive me those things? I shared with them the whole time you were blaspheming the name of the Lord and blowing smoke at that crucifix. You need to understand that Jesus loved you. Jesus' spirit was longing for the day that you would cross the line and give your heart to him. The reason you're sitting with me in my study today is not because God is angry with you, but because God loved you. Would that we could get this deep in our hearts. We can hate sin and still love everybody in Jesus' name. Amen. That's so vital to understanding. 
And then finally this morning, God created marriage to reflect his union with us. And this is the most important point of all. Sweetheart, if you'd come on up to the piano. God created marriage to reflect his union with us. There's something sacred. There's something powerful. And there's something about the gospel that is connected to your marriage. Even if you're married to somebody that's not a Christian. Even if you're married to somebody that's not a Christian. We have members of our congregation who've crossed the line and their husband or their wife haven't crossed the line yet. We have members of our congregation who after years of a faithful, loving wife or a faithful, loving husband eventually crossed the line and gave their heart to Jesus. In a meeting the other day, I heard witness and testimony of a man that I know who at times has been very critical, been very mocking, but because of the faithfulness of his wife, he attended a Christian meeting, which was a huge step forward. I've been watering that in prayer. But see, marriage Marriage has lost this, especially in America today. I did a search on all the major news magazines looking for anything using the search context, trying to find where marriage reflected Christ's union with us. That concept has been totally and completely lost except within the church. But your marriage, Fred, to Diane, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's uniting the church to himself. You never hear me use words like metaphysical and transcendent in a sermon. But those were two powerful words I needed to introduce to you today to understand this point. Because marriage is beyond the physical. Sexuality is beyond the physical. It has its source in the transcendence of God who is above us and above this world. And when you capture the meaning of that, then all of a sudden, your marriage is more than a legal arrangement because of a sheet of paper. Your marriage is more than a legal arrangement that you can go and get done by a justice of peace and then dissolved by another judge. Your marriage is a covenant with God that is permanent and a part of His plan that's meant to be a blessing to the world. I want you to stand with me while I read you this last passage. It's a little lengthy. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's Word. He did this to present him, her to himself as a glorious church without wrinkle or spot or any other blemish.
Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Now, let's do a hard stop right there. Husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loves the church. Not just die for her, but live for her. Jesus died, but on the third day, he rose again. And he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. Jesus died, but he rose on the third day. And he says, peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Jesus died, but he rose again on the third day, and he says, Lo, I will be with you always. And he's ever living for you and for me. School teacher told me this week that sometimes when she has to talk with parents about their children's problems in school, their grades and behavior problems, parents will often say, I die for my kids. And wisely this teacher said, but will you live for your kids? She says, I don't know of a parent that won't die for their kids. She says, but will you live for them? Will you be there to give them what they need? Will you be there to provide for them? Will you be there to teach them? Will you be there to guide them? Will you be there to counsel them? You see, husbands, this is what a godly marriage is. It's not that we're just willing to die. Abraham Lincoln says, I can find plenty of people to die for the union it's people that will live for the union. Do you live for your wife and for your children? God says, when you do this, you're loving your own self. A mature man loving his wife and his children, that man is a man that is growing in love and fun and happiness because he's growing in holiness. Do you get it? A mature man who loves his wife this way, his self-esteem goes up. His self-respect goes up. His confidence goes up. His health improves. His financial wealth improves. Everything about him, all the studies show, everything about him. His wife health goes up. His children's security is almost assured. Everything about him begins to improve because he honors God by loving his wife. And his daughter knows what kind of man to look for as a husband. His son knows what kind of man he ought to be as a husband because he sees that modeled in his dad. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. And as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Read that sentence with me. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. One more time, please. This is a great mystery, but is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. One more once, please. This is a great mystery, 
but as an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Your marriage witnesses to the world that Christ and His church are one. It's not the shingle outside, Assemblies of God or Baptists or Methodists or Catholic. It's are we one with Christ? And what a church is marriages reflect that kind of commitment, then the world has a living picture, a living illustration of what the gospel is. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ladies, look at me for just a second. In closing, there's nothing more than your husband your son wants from you than that you respect them. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter what happens in my day. But if I come home and Becky gives me that respect and my children give me that respect, there's nothing I fear. There's nothing. There's those words from you of encouragement, those words from you, your children, the way you speak... You have no idea if you're a child. You have no idea what it means to your dad, your granddad. You have no idea what it means to your pastor when you come up. Your compliments to me mean more to me than any adult in this church because I know you get it. But when your husband hears from you and sees from you respect, even if he's not always respectful. You'll never beat him by being disrespectful, but you will win him by your respect. And that's why Solomon could pray, let me always be captivated by her love, because he knew his wife respected him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're married, I want you to take each other's hand. And sir, I want you to pray for your wife right now. I'll lead you with some thoughts and let you just pray them. Say, Heavenly Father, help me to live for my wife. Help me to love her even more than I love myself. Help me not just to feed and to care in a physical sense, but to understand her love language and to feed and care for her emotionally and spiritually as well. And Father, thank you. I need my wife. Now, dear sister, if you would pray these words for your husband. Father, thank you for my husband. I left my mother and father to become one flesh with him. Our love is a transcendent love. Our love is united in you. And I pray that you would make us one heart and one mind in all things. And though I struggle at times, help me to always live, speak, and treat 
my husband with respect he needs and deserves. And this morning, if you're a single adult or you're a young college student or maybe you're a teenager in this service, would you pray this prayer with me as well? You just pray it. I'll give you some words to think about and pray. Say, Father, thank you for my parents. I am here because they love each other. I am here because you preordained that I would live in this time. Help me to learn from them so that that subconscious part of myself is filled with godliness and holiness. Help me to pray for my parents for I don't yet understand what it means to build a home. But one day, by your grace, I believe you will make me a husband or a wife join to a godly man or a godly woman. In Christ's name I pray. Now would you pray for the church? Pray for one another right now. Pray for every home and every marriage. Pray for every hurting family. Pray for those families that are struggling with illnesses and sickness and disease. It's for better, for worse. Pray for those families that have a child or a daughter who has some problems that have brought discord. Pray for those families whose husband or wife or children have not yet crossed the line. And give God thanks this morning For he has blessed you with an imagination and the ability to think and to dream and to build a home or a marriage that will prevail against the gates of hell because you are not an animal. You are a human being created in the image of God. Now, Lord, we pray all of these things and we pray over our tithes and our offerings as we prepare to bring them to you this morning. God, would you take them and would you use them and would you especially bless everyone who have come out to worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching a message called Things I Wish I Knew Before I Got Married. And so I'd like you to help me with that message. If you would email me or text me, you can email me at pastor at woodland.church. Email me one or two things that you wish people... Now, don't email me if you don't want me to use them because if you email it to me, I'm thinking I can use it as an illustration. So if it's something you don't want me to share, you need to say, please don't share this. But email me things you wish 
you had known before you got married. One lady told me this week, she said, I wish that I had known that men never put the lid on the toilet back down before I got married. I thought, what's so unreal about that? She grew up in a home full of men, and she just, I mean, women, and so she just never thought about that. Another guy told me this week, he says, I wish that I had known to look inside my wife's closet before I got married. And I says, why? He says, because it's always full, and she never throws anything away. There are all kinds of little things that come in and creep in and sometimes affect the quality of our marriage. Don't they? Just little things. Now, Becky has no flaws. She told me so. That's the reason I know that. But I've got plenty of them, and I know that because she told me so. No, I'm teasing. So what do we do? Tell me those things you wish somebody had told you before you had gotten married. Best advice my daddy gave me was look at her mama, boy, because in 10 years, that's who you're going to be married to. I looked at Becky's mom and I said, well, she's pretty. I am definitely marrying her. So there's all kinds of little things I think we can help each other. We're going to look at what the Bible says about the kind of man or the kind of woman you should marry. Ushers, if you would, come forward and let's receive our tithes and offerings.